The living rhizome explores potentialities through complex semiotic metabolisms. Selective pressure promotes the integral automation of certain assemblages while it disaggregates others from them, or while it installs them in intermediate states, sorts of phase transitions in order to save time to some extent. Thus, many assemblages that seem marginal in appearance vegetate as if waiting on the miraculous chance encounter of a line of deterritorialization that would allow them to set out again. Nothing a priori here justifies the negation of an economy of desire, a politics of the defense of life for life, with anything that involves drama and absurdity. In reality, biochemical causality, strategies of the survival of the species, the tricks and improvisations of desire all incessantly overlap within the same rhizome, and we can only hope to retrieve them on condition of accepting the principle of an absolute polyvocality of the paths and means of doing so. The very rules of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. Once again, we are here for part three of the Super Guatario Bros series. My guests today are Taylor Atkins from Theory Talk Podcast, also translator of the edition of the Machinic Unconscious that we are reading from, and my other good friend, DC, or at 4Q248, um, studying to be a, a psychoanalyst. He's, he's got a blog, Suedo pseudo analysis pseudo analysis um but once again gentlemen thanks so much for joining me today yeah thanks for having me we are back we are back back. so back back in time so today we're tackling chapter five of machinic unconscious primarily dealing with refrains we may tap into a tiny bit of chapter 11 of thousand plateaus but i think the primary focus today will be on machinic unconscious but uh, here we find ourselves in the middle, in the midst of, of a deterritorialization process in place. I'm trying not to stratify too violent or destratify too violently. Uh-huh. Trying not to not to become the body without organs too soon, and fuck this up. But something something is happening. <laughs> <laughs> something is afoot. Yeah, the I mean the the paragraph we started with or the part that you that you set out the podcast with. I mean, this notion of a semiotic metabolism is pretty interesting. It's this notion of, you know, these potentialities, these this regime of possibles, it 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 uh, you know, he talks about the machinic kernel or machinic nucleus of our of abstract machines and they, they're able to lie in wait for this with this swelling of virtual intensity and, and, and potentiality and uh, it takes this deterritorialized flight to like sort of and he'll 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 like it to like it to uh, catalysis right where there are these elements that may not 
specifically take your advice, specifically involved with the reaction, but that helped to bring it about, helped to quicken its pace, intensify it. Um, and so it's that reserve of metastability and potentiality that we're sort of witnessing, you know, um, and we have to think that part of that swelling of intensity is, you know, is involved with the lockdown of this sort of added stress of, um, you know, of, of the, the plague, so to speak, of our day. Also, I think a lot of machinic desire that has no, that is typically able to be directed and territorialized through the market is getting, that process is getting disrupted, which I think is also accelerating part of that, uh, that deterritorialization process. We, sh we shouldn't forget that Oedipus Rex begins with a terrible king and a plague. Um, so. <laughs> in how, connection. How, how perfect, right? Well, if we're talking COVID uh, <laughs> and riot type stuff, it's, I think it's always important to link the idea of the viral up with Guattari and Deleuze and Guattari. That's their kind of their little biological model right. for getting away from teleological and even non-teleological Darwin, Darwinism, which is for them a little too rigid and mm -hmm. doesn't, doesn't, I mean, it, it embodies their concept of the line of flight, the little thing that kind of escapes, but the virus really brings that to light with uh, non non-parallel evolution yeah. um, and those kinds of things. They're orchid and the wasp yeah. mo motif and, I think they they bring that up in this chapter, right? As a one yeah, kind of refrain. He he, he cites uh, Ronnie Chauvin. Um, it's uh, I think it's it's footnote twenty in our. Uh, it's it's about um, he wrote a book. I think it was about desire, if I remember correctly. The citation, but yeah, it's this notion of the wasp and the orchid, the a parallel evolution that's brought up in the rhizome, lots of mm -hmm. ATP, and I think they also mentioned that the cat and the Monkey, hmm. maybe, maybe there's like I don't remember, but you also, um, but yeah, the viral. It's I think it's important for our readings this question of the the inter assemblage, right? Because the viral also, you know, just looking back at what Coop read, it also takes place or has communication with the living rhizome, even if it doesn't necessarily, uh, even if the viral doesn't attain by itself, apart from its interaction with its host the level of the biological, properly speaking. And that's what's so interesting about um, the viral is it is this mediator, it is this operator between yeah. a sort of a physical it, a level, lay, domain of individuation that has the metastability to sort of directly affect the living in the most, not just ontogenetic ways, but phylogenetic ways. So yeah, it's, it's a, it, it is an operator of communication between regimes that didn't have previously exactly. had that. So it's that. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Coop. Oh no, I was, go ahead. I was gonna. I was gonna intro. I was gonna dive more into like specifically the refrain itself, and then yeah, go through kind of like mechanically go through this definition that we have from like the Deleuze and Guattari um, dictionary, which is oh yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll look at the beginning of ATP because they do define some of these terms. So this this is bring this is largely inspired by bird songs, um, which Guattari borrows 
the music, the notion of those, the refrain, that sort of imagery to, to talk about the refrain as sort of these repeated images, gestures, ritual sounds that enable both human and animal sociable, social assemblages to hold together heterogeneous components. So these are, these are markers of human or animal territory as observed in ethology or ethnography. In a general sense, we call a refrain any aggregate of matters of expression that draw a territory and develops into territorial motifs and landscapes. It's also yeah, it's also an element capable of holding territory or assemblage together. So it has this sort of binding property or sort of like an accretionary aspect to it. Right. In response to deterritorialization, the refrain facilitates the creation of psychic entities which enable modern sub subjectivity to function outside of archaic assemblages like clans or tribes. Yeah, this is this is where they bring up the nomos or the nome in the Greek and the in, in the ancient Greek. You know, it's the nomos, the nome is not just um, well, it's it's the little refrain that the merchants or the or the different tradesmen would would speak, particularly the merchants. So this is where the professional type of refrain or the merchants type of refrain takes on its own. Um, well, they, they talk about it. It's, it's, it has its own signature, its own marking, right? Its own, uh, which we'll get into in the ATP stuff. Uh, and, but it also, Nomos is opposed to what? Doesn't matter. Um, it, it's, it's about a distribution in space, and, but it's also about a distribution of law that's different from the concrete juridical notion of law, which I'm blanking on the Greek for, so. No worries. Uh, Guattari is also using the idea of refrain to show that animals creatively acquire learned behaviors and that human beings still rely on these so-called innate ethological rhythms. Then it's also a, a can be a catalyst for creativity or change. And so from an, latching on to this idea of birdsong and animal ethology and I guess the whole discussion of of mating behaviors within the avian sort of realm right like the first thing that i came to mind was have either of you are you familiar with the uh the planet earth series that i, I think it was a partnership between discovery channel or i am yeah and uh, like bbc and so one of my favorite aspects of both planet earth one and two is the mating rituals of the bird of paradise just a, a fascinating fascinating elegant beautiful thing to to see i think take place yeah well what's very interesting is in i believe the second planet earth we see the bird of paradise they find a spot in the in the canopy correct or, or something of that nature and they find a, a, a tree or a small something or other that's sapling that's growing upwards and there's a break in the in the canopy and so a lot of light is shining down and then the bird will meticulously he removes all debris around this this pole so that he can execute his his mating collar and dance and so forth and so he very fastidiously removes leaves and clears all this to perform this this ritual so which this is kind of the first thing i thought of that mm. felt relevant in terms of this ethnological ethological sort of aspect here mm -hmm. and really concretizing and materializing what Quatari is spending a lot of time here discussing when it comes to to birds and mating and different you know all the elaborate rituals that that birds go through whether it be through song or whether it be through physical present what was it the, i think he focuses largely on what the the leaf of grass 
-hmm. Yeah, the blade of grass, or the what's going to translate it as the, the it translates a little bit differently than ATP. It's the stem. What is it? The, the grass stem. That's how he translates. It. Yeah, it's it, it it that 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 and um, yeah. How? Uh, go on. Go on though. Yeah, that that's a good. It's quite literally a uh, re and deterritorialization. The way the bird reorganizes its its living space to sort of facilitate this or to prevent inhibition of this uh, mating mechanism. What I've always found really interesting about Quatari's use of ethology, and I usually look at it from uh, the sort of CCRU type stuff. He mentions that animals, birds, fish, etc., are basically just re-territorialized forces of the earth. So the earth changing over time and its uh, tectonic plates shifting and creating these different environments that cultivate microbacteria and microbacteria that get selected for, and then these lines of organisms develop over time, you know, kind of Darwinian type, Lamarckian type stuff. And so it's just this interesting idea that basically the, the organism, like the bird, is just a recapitulation of the tensions of the earth. And then it constantly interfaces with the earth in these really interesting ways, like you're describing, Coop, of reorganizing the earth so that way it can do more bird stuff. So it's just this big cybernetic loop, uh, which I think gets captured in the concepts of the biosphere, the mechanosphere. I don't know how much this maps onto what you're you're thinking, but I just that's where my mind goes. I think that's all very interesting to think about. E ecological thought, almost. Geo-ecological thought. Yeah, it was just, I think a, a lot of this, the fifth chapter of Machinica Unconscious, you know, focused on that, on the mating behaviors of different species of birds. And that was the you know, that was just the image that was so ingrained in my head. I mean, from the first moment that I saw planet Earth, this mm -hmm. bird of paradise, I mean, the plumage that they have and the way that they dance and so forth is just, it's incredible. It's beautiful. I remember seeing like, right. there's a, there's this black bird and he has uh, these very like these teal stripes of feathers and plumage. And he puffs himself out, out and dances and does this kind of like crackling weird like kind of clicking um, song as, as part of the mating dance right. that is just unbelievable. It's just incredible to see this really complex behavior amidst birds, which you typically don't. I think most people, the common sense version, you know, view of birds is they're probably not the most intelligent or sophisticated species typically, right? It's a different type of intelligence, right? It's, yeah. It's a, it's, I mean, it's a different type of, they have different matters of expression, you know, as, as right. they might say. For, for creating a style, because that's what's so interesting about birds, right? Is this is how this different way of marking, placarding, postering a, a territory, and then this this sort of consolidation of different effects and functions in uh, in the different milieus, in the different elaboration of the frames, all of these chance encounters too, and this sort of the machinic phylum, you could say, in the, the ecosphere, like in which they surround themselves, you see this sort of efflorescence of different bird species, not based on any sort of innate or acquired thing or any sort of general notion of mutation or even selection for the best, for the best traits, but uh, all sorts of different ways that the refrain uh, becomes re-territorialized or deterritorialized in relation to the nest, in relation to gregariousness, in relation to the different courting rituals so like all of this is in communication and it based on these different divergences and these different 
this, this like one could say is they talk about the, the different circles values of code with the, the sort of transcoding that's going on and the, and the sort of machinic opera that they'll, they'll I love that phrase they'll use that phrase of this machinic opera of uh, sort of vibratory communication of milieus and territories and, and assemblages that I mean birds in that sense are, are, are very in their diversity sort of provide an, an interesting sort of blueprint for this infinite variation because what's interesting about Darwin is he looks at you know the Galapagos Islands and uh, what was the birds uh, Finches? Were they finches? Well, I think part of, yeah, that they definitely, he definitely looked, and so he looked at them in like extreme isolation, like geographically, but that's, that's just, I think he, he saw the extremes and it took the extremes to really magnify and this, this vision of natural selection. But I think for Guattari, he kind of deeps, digs deeper and is able to, uh, you know, use these other ethologists to announce a, a much more, you know, this, it's again, it goes back to this basic philosophy about against universals, about um, deterritorialization and about these different vectors that are in play to, you know, to, to explain how variation is sort of a superposition of all these different levels and not necessarily a predisposed hierarchy of one element or component over another. I think it's interesting. I can't remember if it's in a thousand plateaus or, or machinic unconscious, but there's a mention of, of courtly love as being this sort of analog between kind of what the birds, like the bird mating ritual and this courtly love phenomenon that I think is, is kind of interesting. And you also get the concept of uh, like in, in the medieval, not the medieval, but I guess the early, the Renaissance period, and particularly maybe in England, you get the idea of like the, the madrigal, which is... Right. I forget the definition of it. I have to I have to look up exactly what a madrigal is, but it was a type of song. Let's see, a part song for several voices, especially one of the Renaissance period, typically arranged in an elaborate counterpoint and without instrumental accompaniment. Originally used in a genre of 14th century Italian songs. That was awesome. Yeah, I knew that was a type of song, and it's based on a bird, right? And they they're not they're not mocking birds in particular, but they do have sort of a wider range, um, but uh, yeah, I would, do you have anything to add, DC? I'm just wondering what, uh, what do we think the refrain, do we think, how, how does it come up in everyday experience? And how do we see it in our kind of milieu or our plane? And how is it important, I wonder? I think it is. I think the refrain is such this interesting idea for their theory of like how things solidify and come to self-organize and then work as anchoring points to trigger other things. And I think in Thousand Plateaus, they talk a little bit about how the refrain is part of the origin of art. Um, I guess I'm just thinking about uh, what is this concept and why should people care about it and like what's exciting about it? It's, it's, it's a very exciting concept, but I'm uh, trying to put some more form to it, trying to re-territorialize re it, I guess, a little bit. I mean, I, I would go back to what you said a little earlier about about viruses. And this, I mean, rhythms are viral in a certain sense, right? They, yeah. They they sort of allow for this vibrate, or they they allow they are sort of the effectuation of this, you know, this repetition, this creative repetition that they the, that they talk about, right? The the milieu is is a code, and a code is a 
periodic repetition and rhythms have this ability for, for transcoding and sort of exchanging these surplus values of code between the milieus and components, et cetera. And the refrain is, takes that to a next dimension with marking a territory and being, even while it's uh, maybe the most deterritorialized of the territory can still effectuate its existence you know there's something like that's where the refrain i think um that's why songs are so uh, you know they're so trans individual they're already trans individual they're already meant to be sort of at least to a certain extent the possibility of being shared and being replicated and being repeated and sort of being transferred and you know they in that sense they do mark out different territories and, and create this movement of, of trans-territorialization, right? The, both D and read. Um, and this is part of what's, uh, part of how a song can infect you down to the like, you know, capitalistic side of refrains of, with like the, the jingle, right? Or the sort of- uh, Music. Yeah, well, music <laughs> being another extreme, you're right. Um, because well, they, they, yeah. Uh, that's interesting to get in, into in the sense of like vapor wave, too, yeah. which is like re-territorializing. It's like deterritorializing the jingle or like the that element. Mm-hmm. I think about uh, Pink Floyd's money, the way that the, the cash register really yeah. sets up the. It's very it's very subtle um, if you don't really conceptualize it um, because it works so well. Yeah, but it but it has this. It does deterritorial. That would that that could constitute then a refrain. I think Coop, you mentioned like as a car honk or refrain. And yeah, yeah. I mean, you, there could be a chorus of once there. I mean, like one car honk is kind of like oh, you know, it's you know, but uh, once it's once it repeats itself in a certain time limit, and and you can also hear different uh, even if they're usually in the same register. I know that it's like an F sharp or some shit. I, I don't know. Somebody fact check me. Um, once you hear, you can still hear different like intonations and decimal limits of, of when another car's honking, and that right away draws attention. I think like if you're in a parking lot or in a certain public sphere, so it is it is a refrain or at least a component uh, in a larger like chorus. Mm-hmm. Um, money is a good example. Pink Floyd's Money because it's in seven four, and okay. there's a little bit of talk in a thousand plateaus and uh, machine gun conscious about asymmetrical yes. rhythm and about meter meter and rhythm meter yeah. and rhythm yeah and how meter is just this simple by two one and two and three and four and yeah. that's boring and simple and mass produce and then seven four has this unequal quality to it where yeah, there's yeah. surplus to speak of surplus value of code uh boom dun, dun, dun. It's one mm-hmm. and yep. two and three four and five and six and seven one so it yeah. leaves you hanging and then there's this push and this pull to it which is genius uh <laughs> well they even uh, define they define rhythm in that way of the with capital U, the unequal, or the capital I, the un, the incommensurable, right? Yeah. Um, saying it's always undergoing <laughs> transcoding, and they they oppose that to you know the binarization, the turnerization of rhythm, right? The the march or the waltz. Um, yeah. So that's yeah, that's, that's cool. Are you guys uh, musicians at all? 
Not really, no. I have yeah. no training, but I, I do love music. <laughs> I was trained to read music. The, I mean, I, I played the piano for several years. I just, um, I played a lot of sports, and so I kind of, I gave up piano lessons yeah. to, to sort of do that. Just um, kind of a, like a nerd jock or whatever. Yeah, when I, was, <laughs> when I was young. My dad played guitar, but he just played. He didn't. He could never read music. He just did like tablature and would learn yeah. songs by ear and stuff like that. Well, piano yeah. like got me to read music, and then like when my grandmother came to live with me when with us when we were twelve, when I was twelve, I started going to church, and so like my dad and I were, were two of the only like people singing the bass notes. And if you like mm-hmm. look at a, like a hymnal, especially a simplified. Um, the bass, the bass is usually like very, very easy, straightforward to read. So like that was that that continued my reading of of music and sort of understanding where the you know where where the bass is, is meant to accompany uh, the other pitches. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. on yeah. page on page three thirty five of ATP is where they quote. Meter is dogmatic, but rhythm is critical. Yes, yes. Yes, rhythm. Uh, well, when I was reading both texts, I'm a, I'm a musician. I do audio engineering, and I have like a big pedal board. I have several guitars and amps, all the effects. Um, I have this little synth box, and what it has in it is just two channels and they're just basic oscillators and when you flip the switch of one it creates a single solid pitch and you can sweep the knob to change the pitch but if you flip the second channel on uh, it'll create the same exact pitch and you can sweep the knob and change the pitch so if you set both knobs to the same exact pitch or do your best to you will hear the subtle difference in the pitch because you can never, a human can never quite tune the pitch to be exact on a synth oscillator. You need a computer to do it just because, you know, that's how our, we're, our ears are imperfect in our hands. We don't quite have the acute uh, ability to tune it that finely. So the, even the most subtle pitch difference between what should be the same pitch actually creates a rhythm. Um, and this is how... I don't really know the technical ins and outs of synths, but this is how rhythm can be created without things like uh, a drum machine. So there is no uh, content of, of, of rhythm, but the feeling and sound of rhythm is produced merely from audio that produces itself. So this is a little box. I'm not plugging anything into it. There is no human hand producing sound. It's a circuit that produces its own sound. And when you link these two self-oscillating circuits together, that slight difference creates uh, rhythm, which was making me think of, uh, you know, Deleuze's difference in repetition, and then all of this talk by Guattari here of rhythm. Um, and it's just interesting to think of that on a, like, kind of, kind of metaphysical level. Uh, Guattari's, so much of Guattari's language is trying to capture this unexperienceable, like, unknowable state where everything is contingent and moving around and things are interacting with each other but it's really molecular it's on a molecular level um yeah i think there's just music is the one of the few ways that the the outside sort of speak that 
aesthetic unknowable uh, comes into our lives and how we integrate music into our like personal narratives. Uh, I don't know. I think that says something about the refrain. Uh, dancing, who we dance with. It's all interesting, but especially synths. I think there's a little bit on modular synths in A Thousand Plateaus. And the modular synth is probably the most Deleuze Guattarian instrument ever. It's these different parts, these different part objects, and you have to connect them together. And each one has a different set of parameters and a different mm -hmm. power system. And they interact with each other. You can mix and match them. Right. It's all very uh, body without organs. The stuff you said about temperature repetition, you can find that in the early pages of the 11th Plateau. Mm -hmm. I think it's 314, so just a few pages in when they they say um, this is sort of, this is at the top, like maybe seven lines down after the question mark. Do you guys see it? It says, Amelia does in fact exist by virtue of a periodic repetition, but one whose only effect is to produce a difference by which the milieu passes into another milieu. It is the difference that is rhythmic, not the repetition which nevertheless produces it. Productive yes. repetition has nothing to do with reproductive meter. This is the quote unquote critical solution of the antinomy. And I think that that's, I mean, yes. they'll repeat that again when they say that what has rhythm is different from what uh, rhythm effectuates. Um, yes. And and so there's there's this, or what produces rhythm and what has rhythm, right? With this tabbing and but I mean, you know, it's it, all of that was to say. I mean, that's 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 different repetition language. That's kind of and obviously the quotes is, is Kantian language, mm -hmm. um, and and it's. I think what's important about it is. I mean, it 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 helps to. It, it kind of already puts some um, extra extra stank on what you're saying about the the synthesizers because that. I do feel like that's that's a really cool example you were bringing up. Um, I think it maps pretty closely. I mean, the box, the little green box that the synth is in, it's about the size of your hand, and it has the two separate circuits, and that's like the uh, those are like self-referential milieus, and then the minimal difference between the two milieus mm -hmm. is this intermediate area that you can't really. It's not. It's not concrete in the box. It's right. that little bit of difference. And then it creates the rhythm. Uh, but it's the form of rhythm, not the content. There is no drum machine driving it. There is no right. straightforward meter to it, um, which I think That infinitesimal differential DYDX, right? Mm -hmm. That's, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's, let's see, oh, that is, yeah. An oscillation. They use that word a lot, oscillate. It, yeah, they, and Simon Dallin will, will talk about that a lot too, this, this notion of, a lot, a lot of this language is very friendly to, to Simon Dallin's work, which is, which I find happy. We'll have to talk about that in a future episode. Um, <laughs> Coop, you want to you keep us on track? Yeah, yeah. so I, I think this actually very well segues into this early on in, in this chapter, the the subheading of capitalistic refrains, mm -hmm. and which I which I will read here just a little bit that I think is is very much tying in to us, especially in terms of like this meter, this beat, this rhythm. Time is not sustained by humans as something that would happen from the outside. 
There is no interaction between time in general and man in general. Just as space is facialized according to dominant social norms and rituals, time is beaten by concrete assemblages of semiotization, be they collective or individuated, territorialized or deterritorialized, machinic or stratified. Yeah, I love that excerpt. I mean, it's again, it's, it's continuing this fight against universals, right? This, this fight, I mean, it's really a, an ancient philosophical move to sort of always logically point out the, what you call it, but begging, begging the question, right? The issue. And I think this is why you'll see in ATP and in Machine and Cartopsis where Watry, he's already kind of pointed out earlier, but he really gets into it here, where he he's he he says the ethologists we should listen to the ethologists more than the ethnologists. And this, first of all, I, I think my one thing that I would say is this is another dig at structuralism, which hardly hinges upon Levi Strauss, right? Um, and the other thing though is that they they say that the one place where the ethologists can hit this pitfall if they keep going this direction is this over simplification that based on innate and acquired right and it's i think watery is fighting this this binarization of the innate the acquired as these these two poles to like explain these phenomena that are much more intricate and i i, I guess i would just say that that continues a line of thought from anti-edipus there too in chapter three this movement throughout the different regimes from the or machines one could say the primitive machines of the, the capitalistic machine we start with marking we start with this ethological import literally the, the import of the ethos of marking out territories which is like the first step or the first role of the refrain um and it and i think that a lot of that chapter is important because it is pitting the ethologist against the ethologist. And they turned to, you know, he, I think in Machine of Unconscious and in A Thousand Plateaus and in Antiochus, they turned to Pierre Plaster, the society against the state, um, this notion about um, it's wrong to see sort of, it's wrong to see either the state as primordial or the war machine as sort of um, primordial, that war and the state actually have to be explained, pre presupposed by this, by these skirmishes and battles that don't take war as its own object, but try to prevent the accumulation of, of, of something like the state, right? Mm -hmm. Just a, a thought here, could you flesh that out in terms of like what we're seeing current event-wise with, with protests and so forth, or am yeah, I jumping yeah. the gun? No, I mean, we could go to the, we could go to just about every philosophy <laughs> philosopher in the tradition to i mean i i, I think of spinoza about how and simodon um, turns to spinoza in his history of the notion of the individual and um he talks about how he talks about the point when spinoza say that there is it is just it is right for the people to revolt or, or to to overthrow the state and it has to do with a kind of <laughs> harmony established that is able to sort of circumscribe not just the excesses but also to to foster the general intellect and for Spinoza what once the state is used to like 
pit groups against one another um, and, and, and to sort of fight against that, that harmony of, of people and this general collective goodwill, then, then the people have rights to revolt. So, I mean, it's, I mean, the, we understand the increasing with every crisis and it doesn't have to be a monetary crisis. It could be a crisis like we're living through today, you know, in this critical moment, we see these events, but there are events that are kind of like May 68, where they, they didn't take place in like any sort of revolutionary sense, any sort of becoming, but it's the events are actually on the side of those who are accumulating wealth and capital. And we see with each quote unquote event, it's really an event for this disparation, this increasing disparity between, you know, this, between the accumulators of wealth and those who are sort of on the bottom, we call it the 1% or whatever. And we see a shrinking middle class. We talk to Aristotle about the middle classes and Nietzsche talks about this kind of too, but in a different sense, in a modern sense where that they allow for the continued communication and resonance between the, the high and the low. And once you, once that middle, once the milieu, the intermezzo, it continues to attenuate. There is a point where there's going to be a sort of violent reverberation that, that has no pre-established or probabilistic harmony or it's, it, it is literally this production of, of a noise that can't be canceled out or can't be incorporated. And that is what I would say in terms of the refrain, even if metaphorically we can kind of see with, um, this swelling of intensity that I kind of brought up earlier, right? The first you have the lockdown and there's all kinds of, uh, on the whole spectrum, there's all kinds of either outspoken or internalized, individualized and the increased anxiety we, we kind of carry around on our shoulders as biological beings. And and that's going to, I mean, that's, that's almost simple Floyd, right? Uh, DC, this sort of damming up of, of stimuli, intensities, drive, the libidinal, the libidinal drive, right? I mean, Freud talks about happiness as as it takes a certain amount of intensity to build up, and it's that release that's that produces happiness. And happiness isn't like a state that we just live through day to day. It's for him, it's it's quantified, it's quantic. Mm -hmm. I think that there, I mean, Deleuze and Guattari would call it quanta possibles or quanta possibilization. There's there, there's a certain amount of quanta possibilization that zones of power, as I'll say, uh, has to sort of tweak because really those quanta possibilization have to do with, um, you know, desire leaking from the substructure or the infrastructure. And mm -hmm. zones of power are defined by how much they allow that desire to leak because it's that leak that, you know, as we know from the story of the, the little Dutch boy trying to like poke the different holes in the dike, at a certain point, it, it, the system can't hold or at least has to give way, has to give leeway to relieve the pressure, if only to better like coordinate it, right? So it can swing. Re-territorialization. Well, it's, I think it would be like, what's interesting about re-territorialization is it's always in, in connection with which deterritorialization, right? And mm -hmm. so it's only it's one half relative. Right. Yeah, I think, uh... If we buy the idea that accelerationism somewhat comes from Deleuze and Guattari's Nietzschean reinterpretation of Marx and Freud, which I think is valid, and we put aside all of the incredibly polemical 
misunderstandings of what accelerationism is nowadays, and we right. don't get bogged down in some of that. Yeah. Uh, it's really a libertarian project, and yeah. some accelerationists will get upset about that. But and I know I'm saying this because you would you're somewhat along the lines of libertarianism, right, Goop? An anarchism. Yeah. I don't know your your. I mean, I tend to view them as similar. I don't know yeah. if that's right. I'm not very good with politics. Like so. a le definitely like a left libertarianism, I think would be a fair way to right. to go about it. Definitely a big libertarian streak. Just I think by virtue yeah. of of being like for one, like America, I think has that tradition. But in specifically like Texas, especially as like the rugged individual and like the the wide open spaces, like that allows a lot of you know that sort of mm -hmm. you sort of create craft your own being your own becoming yeah. because there is like bring freedom. It up. there's a lot of, there's a lot of physical deterritorialized space for your like subconscious unconscious to like expand mm -hmm. there aren't these limitations <coughs> you're not encountering a lot of social the social is a lot is far more diminished in the rural than it is in something like new york city right like you're not bumping up into other individuals and like your example from your your piece uh, about whenever you're kind of strumming the guitar whenever you first hit that note so that vibration carries out and then like the second time the vibrate that second vibration is encountering the reverberation of the first note yes so that's a lot more spatialized whenever you're existing in kind of a rural area right like those it's all <laughs> you know what i mean that that reverberation can go out for a, a far longer physical space. Yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Well, I brought it up to think about kind of what Taylor said about uh, people's needs and the need for libidinal investment, the need for libidinal discharge. And because yes. the whole accelerationist project, even though it gets called fascist and all that stuff, is a kind of anti fascism where basically democratic uh, big state democracy is viewed as being a kind of soft fascism oh, yeah. that Absolutely. is both trying to impose this one way on everyone yes. and at the same time is afraid and unable to use the really hard force that like hard fascism used in Europe. Yes. And we're, we're seeing that now where yeah. the authority of the police is completely fucking undermined and that they can't, they might bring in, you know, these little APCs and these cop convoys, and they're absolutely abusing people and abusing their power. But we're not going to see, a, you know, Trump tweeted this scary tweet about if the looting, then the shooting. Yeah. Uh, which got removed. Somebody which got removed. Reported. Yeah, reported. Yeah. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> but the second something, Trump does something really heinous like that, it's all over. You actually lose your power. Zizek talks about that. Yeah. The people that are the least in power are the ones constantly exerting the power in a way that just seems ruthless and needlessly violent and just ignites this reaction to it. So that's not really leadership. But the whole accelerationist thing is uh, the idea that is accelerationism is a theory of time and to accelerate is just means to deterritorialize. Uh, things fragmentize and when things fragmentize they can pick up speed and they actually build off of each other's speed um, there's the metaphor kind of of the the rock 
or the asteroid that's hurtling through the atmosphere and it starts to break up. But as it starts to break up, it loses uh, resistance against the atmosphere and then picks up speed. So then you continually get these broken up fragments that are getting faster and faster and they build off each other's inertia. And I think the kind of libertarian thing to that is this free market idea of like, of like, you know, let people organize along the lines of flight they want to organize along and let people organize in a way that they'll invest libidinally in the kind of communities they want and they'll be able to achieve the discharge they want. And, you know, Europe used to do that psychodynamically with the festival, you know, the psychodynamic yeah, interpretation of the festival is we, we do our duty the whole year and then we have this week or day or whatever right. or month where we really let go and then after the fact there are no moral prohibitions we don't go to our neighbor and be like hey i saw what you did during the festival that's really bad man we all kind of take a blind eye as long as we didn't hurt each other i think that's very free market uh so i think the losing guitari kind of embody this kind of accelerationism of like uh self-organize along the lines that make sense surround yourself with the people that you want and so much of group violence comes from this need for the state to overcode everything and to try and force this sort of unitary vision. Right. And some people just aren't going to do that and it's going to create chaos. So I think that's a very yeah. apolitical way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I'm reminded of, uh, you guys read Mikhail Bakhtin and his work. No, uh, I haven't. Uh, I'm familiar, he, but I've, I, I, read him. I have some like, Old, old fucking blog post I'll show you later, but uh, the two things with Bakhtin, he's this reader of uh, sort of Renaissance, especially Renaissance literature, and he's just, he's just great. He's a theorist, but also totally in touch with literature. Anyway, so he has two concepts that are really interesting. One is, is the chronotope, and chronotope is like this conjunction of space and time that he uses to understand the development of literary genres and and leading up to the novel um so you know from like the homeric epic the iliad where it's uh it's in this constant present and it's got this uh, but to you know these more diverse uh genres that are able to uh, not just have a present and then and, and then um but be able to retrospect and move forward and backward in time much more freely than say the oral epic um, and so it is this functional writing. So there's, so the prototype is that it's like, you know, it's, it's used as this marker, this index of, of space-time conjunction, right? Uh, which would be kind of, which we could call a refrain, or at least a uh, scriptural refrain used to diversify literary genres. But then there's also the notion of carnival, which really I want to bring up, uh, you know, to, 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 to dovetail off of DC, you know, this notion of, um, called a festival, but he has a notion of carnival. And he sees it in Renaissance literature in, in these different aspects, and, and in ancient literature too. But it's a carnival specific festival because it usually implies the this reversal of hierarchies. So um, the king or the whatever the town mayor or whoever it be in power is sort of parades around for the day as as the lowest, and there's this reversal of roles. But as Bakhtin notes, in this yearly occurrence or however semi-annual it's it's it actually
actually in the end sort of reinforces the hierarchies because it says, ah, that was just a fucking joke. Like we're going back to the same power relations tomorrow, you know, yeah. midnight. Um, which is the precise point yeah. of it is to subvert the expectation, mm -hmm. but it keeps the keeps but, the primary. But it also uh, discharges, as, as you were saying, right? It lets off some steam where people can parade around as as though power relations were were possibly changeable. Um, yeah, maybe they, that's what's happening now. Honestly, to be quite honest, it, I mean, if you it, think about it, it depends, right? It depends because things can become carnivalesque. I sort of this ad absurdum movement, and who defines absurdity is obviously a question, and it's part of the this exchange. Um, I think in the machine unconscious, you know, you, I think you both brought up freedom. Um, there's a great quote from. From the text that you find, if you guys want to join me. It's on 128 at the top of Mushinka Conscious. And I, I guess I will, I will say it's what, what I like about the, um, this definition of freedom is part of it is in dialogue with the ethologists about the innate. And he'll, he'll, he'll say this, this question about the innate acquired on the one hand, but also machinic freedom, right, on the other. Uh, so it says, this is right after the turn, the, right at the top, three lines down. Freedom consists in the give and take of quanta of deterritorialization emitted by refrains, facialities, etc., and carried by the ensemble of the components of the assemblage, whether these quanta be material or mineral, individual or group-oriented by the public. And then he goes on to talk about this um, these degrees of freedom relative to time, spaces, the most diverse intensities, and inter-assemblage, quote-unquote, optional subjects um, in this negotiation of all these different valences of degrees of freedom, refrains and faciality, take on these privileged places in micro-political confrontations. I, I, I think that that little bit is like very um, important, this notion of Quanta. I mean, we can think, we have to think, like, complementarily between the vibratory nature of the milieu, right, the waveform that it has, um, as well as the quanta that sort of compose it at the same time. There's the particulate and the undulatory, right, as, as Laura would say. And so it's this, it, 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 and it's a whole question of, you know, if we start with the Big Bang and the initial sort of, uh, vibratory outburst that it's it's a lawn of expansion within that you have all these different refrains cutting across all sorts of levels that are you know inherently musical one could say by their definition but is uh, this sort of complex equation of energy and uh, not just energy but also mass and space and time and we sort of are on this earth and we we are a part of that great vibration uh, we're sort of in contact with all these different vibrations on the sort of on the molar and the molecular level but also on the sort of supra anthropocentric and infra right so on both sides human is this tightrope uh, you know on this vibratory tightrope of of life and for at, at certain points, you know, capitalism seems to have an easier way of sort of regulating people's release valves with that buildup of intensity. But um, but but especially now in this 
this lockdown or you know, whatever you want to call it in this mode of you, know, you can call it isolation but it is a, it's a deterritorialization of normal modes of socialization that yes. capitalism is usually facilitated right it's that that starts to break down and, and you see yes. how fragile then the mechanisms of capitalism right. enticement and appeasement story might say yeah those that. yeah those those pressure release valves have been like that pressure has just been building over the months as we've been in in the lockdown yep. and that libidinal that libidinal energy that capitalism constantly is, is thriving on like that machinic aspect is is what's yep. this is the outburst of it right and i mean some mm. people were asking me like why are they loading or why are they burning down like a target and is not target first of all it is this conglomeration of your one stop for everything so to speak, within general reason, uh, especially not just for food, but also for other other capitalistic enticements that might keep us sane during, keep us releasing. But it's almost like this, this access, this, this strangely mediated, but, but off-kilter access to all these capitalistic goods. They are, they are means of keeping our, uh, keeping our, our intensities regulated. And same with like Netflix and all these streaming, services, oh, yeah. gaming, whatever it is, they almost become, they almost take on the opposite valence of breaking the fourth wall and making us conscious of like, this is just to keep me in line, right? This is just to help me regulate my own fucking right. sanity um, <laughs> under, um, Hell yes. you know, but that's, that's part of the, I mean, this could go to anti-edical terms, it's just a question of what, what comes first, psychic repression or social repression? And there's two words for repression there, which is small on their part, but, uh, you know, but it's, but they're, they're, they're already, they're, they're already the same thing, just under two different regimes. Um, they're simultaneous and they're, uh, they're sort of, they, they, they work in conjunction, but, but when we are edipalized and neuroticized, we, yeah, capitalism can fulfill, not just fulfill our needs, but like make us happy in the Freudian sense by relieving that that valve and with the continuing disparities of wealth and this this question of access to goods of the toilet paper to bring in the first organ to be uh, <laughs> to be socialized to be to be no sorry to be desocialized to be privatized this, this lack of toilet paper i mean it's, it's it's also a lack of control right dc it's it's kind of a lack of being able to regulate oneself in a in a way that makes us like a well-adjusted adults and it, and it and that's the same with the sort of financial political infrastructure of okay so many jobs are inessential and there's no long-term provision i mean you might get us half a month to pay rent you know or to cover help cover rent with this one-time payment but uh you know, that's, that's another valve that I, we haven't even really brought up. And that's, that, that sort of takes on this feedback loop where it, it reinforces the anxiety about the current situation, right? And so it takes on this, its own uh, rhythm, its own refrainization, its own sort of resonance that also swells and becomes a part of people's everyday, like, struggles with fucking existence making ends meet, however you want to put it. And that's, that, that itself, that's on the much more base level of, that's a, that's a fucking like biological vital level of like, 
and it's it's accentuated well physical property matters more than this continued sort of haphazard encounter of um, systematic sort of preventable um, racism that, that that culminates in the loss of life in the also but also the degradation of the value of life for certain certain groups right I and mean, it's it's always for certain groups and that's made clear very you know very often it's I mean this is Obama had his faults, but the, part of what he was trying to do with the DOJ at the end of his, his second term was these, um, I forget what they're called, what kind of orders they're called, but this this targeting of sort of the worst precincts. I, you know, I think Baltimore fell in there, I'm sure some of Arizona, and, and trying to, uh, to reform this old dog that doesn't want to die of the, you know, the will to power of the, the police force to continue in a way that it always had which was a kind of you know the roman father of the household of this this this, this ability this uh to sort of take life and death into their own hands and to not face consequences for it and to then dole it out in ways that obviously targeted certain individuals so like that 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 question of what what what's worth more your the life or, or or economy or the financial economy right which has also been the whole story of this crisis get your ass back to work the economy needs your sacrifice right that's so if, if life then is devalued to that point by the state or by the state of the economy by the capitalist state which is much more global then it's it's this well my, my life doesn't matter what does your fucking property matter what does what is what is this is not a target isn't ours it's it's sort of encroaching upon a territory and, and and part of this rhythm of life that it tries to make a profit and tries to grow its shares and all this inhuman shit that like doesn't fucking matter at the vital level when your life is already seen to not be well then it's that's when you fucking revolt right you're you're willing to sacrifice your life because it already doesn't mean shit that's like les mis right it's like you're dirt in the street and you just the disparity grows and it's like like we're willing to die and yeah i uh i've been thinking about this as far as like i would say you know i have nothing i have nothing to lose but my life and i already lost that a long time ago so <laughs> now where's that from um that just something i kind of made up largely but it's sort of drawing a little bit from hamlet uh because he's like i have you know, he's like i have nothing to i have nothing except my life my life and i forget that whichever act that's in but but it's in there and so that's like the inspiration but yeah it's like i have nothing to lose but my life and that that's already been sealed to some degree like that decision's already been made so there is literally nothing there's nothing preventing me there's that tragic sense of life uh, what is it? Miguel de Unamuno. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen the new season of, well, this, this, the, the Picard Star Trek. I haven't finished it. I've like to watch seven episodes, but the captain, he gets sort of to take him outside the Federation to get a ship. Is He's reading the tragic sense of life. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it, it just reminds me of like the Hamlet stuff. You know, uh, I think Artist Jones 
famously on Hamlet and Freud. I think he has a, I think that's the thing that I remember reading. Um, and, and I believe Deleuze Guattari alluded to, at least alluded to Hamlet and Auntie Oedipus, right? Um, I have to. Mm-hmm. So it's in a discussion with, uh, it's in a discussion with Polonius and he's asking if he can, my Lord, can I, I will most humbly take my leave of you. You cannot, sir, take from me anything that I will more willingly part with all except my life, except my life, except my life. (laughs) (laughs) We've talked a lot about, I think, gone into the aspect of like this, this vocal or sonic element of the refrain, but. I also think we should discuss the physical, um, so like refrains or even even the auditory refrain is delimiting space, it's delimiting time. I think it's also interesting to look at this in terms of physical space, and you can think of this through the lens of like the, the protests, um, the mass of people, the way that the police align themselves, etc. Like doesn't that, does that not have some sort of re- resonance when it comes to the refrain and I'll kind of leave that to you uh, both to, to see what you think about that. I would just say quickly like the refrain in the, you know, the last uh, on last time, you know, we, we talked about faciality. We're part of the looting, right? You're, everyone's already wearing masks. So facial recognition technology doesn't work as, as well when we're wearing masks, not even for those reasons, those uh, we're like more or less, if not legally, then like sort of morally, socially, et cetera, obligated right. to, to wear masks, especially if we want to like come in contact with certain uh, businesses, for example, like George's reopened and is, you know, certain places like salons and, and uh, you know, nail salons and hair salons, like uh, why are you to wear a mask to, to get entrance? So there's this interesting thing where capitalism is like, hey, wear a mask, don't show your face. And that okay. obviously has like, it, has, it already has like inherent benefits to your sneaking and uh, yeah, right. pickpocketing skills and such. I was even thinking about that, like in terms of, because the book, Machine of Conscious goes into a little bit about sort of, I believe if you're like walking down the sidewalk, how you physically kind of delimit your own, like what is your quote unquote, what is it within your yeah, personal space? They do, yeah. So I was thinking about things like manspreading or, or I don't know, how you sort of physically orient yourself to adjusting your posture and so forth as as a sign of the refrain. I want to go back to the, uh, I think this matches, this connects. You, you, I think you read an excerpt about man doesn't have a direct relationship with time. It makes me think of that and how we internalize this kind of unitary overcoated state sanctioned like way of thinking i guess my example is this probably has a lot to do with what you're saying with how we carry ourselves is my first real job was in college and i was a waiter and that's the first job I really took seriously, like worked as many hours as I could, did overtime, would work like 16 hours a day. And I remember, well, ever since I've worked that job, the way I think about time has been different. I remember when I was really getting into being a waiter, I would try and 
because the, the thing about being waiters, you have to optimize time like incredibly. You have to be uh, keeping in mind all the different tables you have and their food goes in at different times. And you have to be thinking about when you put the appetizer in, you don't want all the food to come out at the same time. So there's this kind of simulation of, of serving these people where you have to meet a certain etiquette and perform a certain way. And it's all based around timing. Uh, and the food takes a certain amount of time to cook. Um, so time and money, which is just the basic of, basis of capitalism, Mark says, time and money, or time. Surplus value is created out of allocating time in strange ways. Um, but I remember when I would go home, I would start to uh, try to optimize time in like little fun ways. Like I would pop something in the microwave and it'd be in for two minutes. And I'd say in my head, like, okay, before the microwave goes off, I need to get everything out of the fridge that I need to make my sandwich. I need to run to my other room and grab my book. And like, so the way I operated in the restaurant under all these sort of capitalist overcoding uh, time formations, refrains in a way became the way I acted at home. Uh, and I think it's really stuck with me my entire life um, because now I have these crazy days where I work at the clinic 7 a.m. to 3.30, and then I go, I used to go to my office and see private pay patients. Now I go home and see patients on Zoom for three or four hours. And then I have maybe two hours to hang out with my girlfriend and dogs, and then sometimes I go back to the clinic and work a night shift. So I can work about 20 hours out of the 24 hours. Um, so talk about optimizing time. And that night shift time I use to do other tasks. You have really about two hours of work. You make sure all the residents are in bed, and then you have six hours or seven hours before they wake up, and then in the morning you help them get ready for the day. So during those time, that time, I edit papers for people and I get paid or, you know. So I think thinking about how man doesn't have this direct relationship with this material force of time and how you have to carry yourself certain ways and how that kind of ends up being part of your personality and then how it structures basically the decisions you make later in life is pretty much the refrain, you know, how these material forces get crystallized um, and repeat. Uh, and that's meter. You know, I, I went from being this kind of, kind of schizo kid who, you know, before I had this job, I would wander the city uh, that I lived in and just wander it. And just, you know, oh, that alley looks cool. I'll walk there. You know, I'll see what's there. Oh, this street looks cool. And before you know it, four or five hours would go by. I'd just be wandering the city. But then you get sort of structured and you're forced to make money. And then you, uh, I don't really do that anymore. So I think that's very much difference between rhythm. You know, I'm in rhythm with the city and then meter. Now I'm, I'm metered. I would almost think of it more like you have cadences on, on both ends and then sort of you're able to, within that, sort of block, elaborate different rhythms. And I mean, you know, I, I totally understand what you mean about this sort of blocking out time. It's, it, you always have to sort of leave time, at least a minimal time to, to recharge, to clear yourself, to keep, keep going for the next day. So you're already kind of thinking that the next time when you have this block is going to be different. Um, mm -hmm. Sort of when you have, you have your downtime, if you have that, what what are the parameters? What's the, what's that block like? And you may give yourself sort of more or less structure depending on you know, your priorities. Um, 
know, a lot of people don't have those delimited blocks of time. They don't have a lot of people far out of work or, or they can work from home and have sort of more flexible hours, which is a luxury, of course, for you know, certain jobs that were at least deemed uh, essential enough to have virtual, you know, if, if they had those virtual capabilities, not all jobs do, obviously. So, yeah, I mean, this, right now we're sort of fluxing in this pre-allocated block of time that you know, we're able to, to meet up and do our thing. My job actually tracks, so I have to be, I, there's software that tracks exactly what I'm doing at all times. Really? Yes. Well, that's, that's paranoia right there. <laughs> yeah, so it's like I, I have to log into different modes of, of, be, of becoming, <laughs> essentially. It's like, oh, I am doing, I am doing, I am this machine for this period of time. Now, now I am this machine, and then I am this machine, and yeah. so on and so forth. But I don't know how, how that fits in terms of the refrain is like the ref, is the refrain like the metaphorical um, like idealist clock ticking the metronome sort of directing the rhythm of of our lives in this very construed capitalist organization. It's, it's just uh, you know we I mean part of I mean, part of the socialization process is, is, is being able to you know, accord ourselves and attune ourselves with with certain cadences. They they, they have rhythmic character sometimes, but we well, we have to, right? That's part of when we get back to DC, you know, that's part of the uh, thing about being a waiter too, you know, managing your time like that. You know, that is your capacity to, to earn tips and like sort of increase your your own income. So it has a it has a survival value. It has a it also has a a value of wanting to if, if one is going to perform a task, right, uh, you know, try to try to do your best. Um, and, but with the refrain, you know, it's it's a question about it's you know it's, it's something much more, I guess, dynamic than just sort of the, the clock, right? The social time and capitalist time or whatever. It, yeah. I was saying my experience is the opposite of the refrain. I went from Got it, having yeah. rhythm and being able to kind of freely explore things and have this kind of personal time to becoming metered and losing a rhythm and being becoming very rigid with time and money and desire and investment and all that kinds of stuff. Yeah, I think I have a similar experience in growing up in a rural area where I could just like I said earlier, I got to kind of roam wherever I wanted to, and there was plenty of space to let the imagination also, and like the the uh, the imaginary, the the fantasy develop without any kind of physical limits. Mm -hmm. There was so much op openness and freedom, <coughs> and that all mm -hmm. like that sort of that all kind of narrows down as you progress <laughs> as you progress through life. And because yeah, it does. I guess territorialized or like I don't know. That's why I brought up the idea of self-organization earlier. Um, sometimes I'll be driving in the countryside and you just see these big tracts of land, but you think it's free land, but then you realize the state owns it, if not like some sort of farmer. But very often there's these nice tracts of land with like uh, radio towers on them that you know the state owns, and you think like 
if I want to go just explore that, if someone viewed me as acting in a suspicious way, I could get the cops called on me and it could be this big thing. It's just this, there's this crushing idea that there is no free space anymore. And I think kind of, you know, I, I don't really align with any particular uh, political whatever, but I think what I like about libertarianism or whatever, uh, it's kind of a cringy word, libertarianism, people have made it into that, but it's the idea that uh, space can have some level of freedom to it again, and that you can develop your own rhythm with your space and your territory, as opposed to get locked into all these meters uh, marching at someone else's drum kind of thing. I don't know if that gets us away from the refrain or it is in touch with it, but I just keep coming back to those ideas. Did you have anything you wanted to add, Taylor? Because I had something that I was going to... Go ahead. Yeah. So to kind of move forward in the text a little bit, it, it goes back to our last uh, discussion on faciality and how capitalistic refrains and faciality work together and are classified among the collective micro-political infrastructure is responsible for arranging our most intimate temporalization and modeling our relation to landscapes and the living world, which I think goes to that a bit about a bit what DC was sort of hinting at. I think this bit is also interesting here. A face is always associated with a refrain. A, a significant redundancy is always associated with a face, with the stamp of a voice. I love you, do not leave me. You are my world, my mother, my father, my race, the cornerstone of my organization, my drug. I can do nothing without you. What you are really, man, woman, object, ideal of standing, in fact, matters little. What counts is that you allow me to function in this society, that you neutralize in advance all the solicitations of the components of passage that could derail me from the system. And then, then he goes further. I think this, this in particular, this last bit is interesting to me here. Now, initiations in, into the semiotics of social time no longer arises from collective ceremonies, but from processes of encoding centered on the individual that tend to confer an increasingly large role to the media. Yeah, standard time, TV time. Yeah. I have a little joke about uh, faciality and refrains if, that I think you, you'll both like, but I made me think of you mainly, Goop, which was... Uh, at the beginning of the refrain plateau, there's this little picture of the tweeter machine. Did you guys see that? Uh, yeah. Like birds connected to each other. Um, and then in the chapter, the plateau, of course, they talk about posts and placards. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then the refrain is related to faciality, which Nick Land makes a little joke about faciality. He says it's interesting that this the crazy wilderness of the internet in the 90s kind of gets overcoded by Facebook and it becomes, you know, basically this idea of a book of faces. And that's pretty much what all social media to an extent is. So there's just this interesting accidental semiotic association between the refrain and the faciality uh, with Twitter and the, the tweeter machine and uh, Facebook. Um, and then you're connecting it here with this Guattari bit about media. So there's something a little bit uh, coincidental and funny in there about Twitter, Facebook, social media, all that kind of stuff. So it just made me think of, oh, and posting and placards, because it made me think you're always making uh, posting puns, you know, or, or uh, tweeting puns. So 
you should uh, you should write something on that. <laughs> it's very on brand for you. Yeah, um, I, I think it's interesting because so I think what Guattari is getting at here is so the media is beginning to overcome or we don't have these smaller social groups and the mass media taking over that role, which is somewhat interesting because I think you see to some degree at, at this point that the the text is being written, there's a move towards centralization that is now like there's that interestingly enough, actually, I guess a move of territorialization and then detail like so we're witnessing sort of the mass consumer culture fracture and then it's but then it's coming back together it's being re-territorialized to some degree by facebook and twitter but even that is like even in i think the the piece that you wrote about what, what was the title it was like nick land and the one that you shared yeah. Oh, the, the, my Patreon document? Yes. The, the critiques on uh, Nick Land. And I talk about uh, Professor Challenger from a Thousand right. Plateaus as well. Yeah. But you have that uh, really excellent diagram of sort of this, pro this process of deterritorialization and reterritorialization where every time that there's that process completes the cycle, let's say, something is like it's moving towards a more deterritorialized element, right? Yeah, the way I read D&G, and I think Taylor's input here could be really helpful because I think this amb ambiguity is that every time something re-territorializes, that re-territorialization is just this little contingent reference point for further deterritorialization. Um, so every time something comes apart and then comes back together, that coming back together is just used to launch more coming apart. Um, which I think is really interesting to think about. And yeah, I mean, in, in the, in the earlier, uh, I think in chapter three, he has the, the four different domains, um, you know, two of which are on the, the, two of which are on the semiological side and two of which are on the semiotic side as he like divides them. Mm -hmm. So as you transform from like, say, he, he labels them A, B, C, D. So like if you go from the most sort of interpretive signifying level A to D or vice versa, you have like a much more radical shift in terms of the re-territorialization, at least as he like plots it out and diagrams it. So I think that that's an interesting like Corollary to what you were saying about you know, R and D virtualization, like they're going together, they can one can be sort of uh, more intense than the other, I could say, right? Or uh, mm -hmm. it can be they're in the movement itself, I guess, in the actual sort of trajectory that they cross in the terms of those four planes that, that involves like a much more radical shift. So. Um, you can see that in, I guess, um, you can even see that in some of like the bird species that he pointed out, how they can make a shift to a gregarious or, or uh, sort of courtship, mm -hmm. like zigzag. Couple, it, like from the couple to the social, but also, you know, to this heightening of the social that sometimes happens in these, like the, the, the weird bit of information about these supernumerary 
agglomerations of millions and millions of finches and of birds, how they like more so than normal sort of like do the spontaneous walking and that kind of gregarity is like a, it's like a fucking, it's an event of super saturation, I could say. It's, it's a, in itself, it's this, uh, it's this crazy imagining. It really brings to light like the horror of the birds. Um, of birds, <laughs> whatever, you know. So you, one of Zizek's favorite little movies to riff on. There was a, there was a little quote I thought was, was interesting and it kind of maybe brings a lot of things full circle. If you guys look on 129, right before that, I guess five lines down at the top, starting the political issue. Okay. And he says, the, the political issue subjacent to these questions appears to us to be the following. Is it conceivable that a highly differentiated structuration, behaviors, and associates is not necessarily correlative to a constraint of individuals, to oppressive hierarchies, and a methodical flattening of their spaces of freedom? Yeah, this is beautiful. Kind of gets to DC's point about libertarianism about this question of spaces of freedom. And I think Guattari is being both perhaps literal, but also figurative, taking space in, in, in a very broad sense. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, this, I think that I would restate it maybe a little bit. You, if you had to like summarize it, it's just like, because he's looking back at Tim Bergen and, and this hierarchy of behaviors, and he's questioning the pre pre-established the presupposed hierarchy that Tim Burton brings to read um, both animal and human species. And so it's this question of, can we have highly differentiated behaviors that aren't already like pre-established as a hierarchy, but take certain valences of freedom and provide certain territories to launch off or even to deterritorialize? Can we have that differentiation, but not necessarily have to like constrain activities? <coughs> well, it's, Let's talk about capitalism, right? These, these, these oppressive hierarchies, um, you know, that, that I, I, you know, he, he would probably not just link it to, to capitalism because different forms, different political bodies do have different reigns and regimes of sort of reigning in people and, and allowing them to or make, well, allowing them to accept, accede to their, to the, to the oppressive hierarchies and kind of adjust we say well adjusted um so can we have that differentiation but also have this 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 these spaces of freedom can we can we even conceive that and it's it's obviously always a negotiation this this question of a negotiation of these one of possibles um, and whether or not they can take shape in terms of the abstract machines real consistency right it's existential consistency no, I like that. It's very in line, of course, with the assemblage theory of disparate elements being brought together and how they create a surplus rather than whatever the opposite of assemblage theory is that things have to be homogenous and make sense and connect, you know, dis disjunctive synthesis or inclusive mm -hmm. disjunction rather than mutually exclusive logic. Is that is that function is that the way that the protests are functioning to a certain extent? I think the protest. I, I don't know. I don't know enough about that stuff, but uh, I think protest in general tends to get stuck in dialectical kind of battling each other, basically on the same values. 
uh, I don't know, it's too complicated. But well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a question. I think now there's, I think protests are obviously uh, they, they are in sort of molecular interaction with this bigger spectacle of of, of looting and arson, which is not seeking the same kind of political recognition that organized protest does. There's different, there's different regimes of sort of, uh, of expression, right? There's, there's, there's not, it's not the same type of dialectic in protest and in the uh, once that goes outside of its sort of legally allowed, at least within the current political it's, it's guaranteed by the First Amendment, but the question of, of the importance of the First Amendment to the executive office is obviously you know, up for grabs. And it's been a part of that dialogue. I can't help but you know, see some of Trump's tweets about, not just as you guys brought up earlier, the leading the shooting, which is actually quoting a sheriff yeah. like 50 years ago, right? Yeah. But also this notion of, like, well, Shutting down Twitter or whatever, you know, whatever the hack really may be, given given hour, given day. Um, so this this notion of, of spaces of freedom, um, and one could say faces of freedom is, you know, as DC was joking about earlier with Facebook, it's the, uh, I mean, social media is obviously one of Trump's, you know, it's a tool, it's a weapon, it's a, it's a magnifier it's a it's a it can be a bullhorn the trial balloon it's all of these these things and it and it's a uh, it's really a function of the, the repetition and just doesn't really matter what the, the message is right it's sort of the intensity of the medium uh, to a certain extent there's there there is a there is a refrainization of, of trump's tweets and a lot of times you can see you can kind of feel whether uh, whether he wrote it or his you know communications director, his media guy, what's his name? I forget because I don't really care. But you know, uh, <laughs> you know he's got the guy that also can curate his tweets and stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of times you can't tell, uh, not just based on like the spellings, but random capitalization. You know, there is a style. I could say there is a. You can even look at Trump's signature, his style, or his signature, the kind of cacophonous um, zigzagging. I'm sure writing analysts have you know, beaten that dead horse, so I won't hear, <laughs> you know. I just think that in terms of like, okay, so we have these heterogeneous components all coalescing at this given, like, at a point in time at a physical place. And so they're all, they're, that assemblage is is occurring right amidst like there's black lives matter elements there's other like anarchist and other leftist strains of individuals that are participating in, in and also forces way. on the right yeah militia then or we're gonna protect you know we're, we're for the we're for the protest but against the looting you know, yeah so there's all these different heterogeneous components that are all getting in, in they're constructing this assemblage if i'm using that correctly 
but it feels it feels accurate, right? So that's kind of the phenomenon that I think is really interesting is this very spontaneous accretion of different you know social groups at this one particular instance in time and space where the material conditions allow or facilitate help facilitate this more than others because of like we talked earlier about you know there's a lot of young there's a lot of young people out of work that have free time right and so that's one component that's one variable right amidst all the others that were conditional sort of, possibility yeah uh so it's all kind of coalescing in this strange almost like a singularity of of rupture of puncture into the status quo or what have you right there's i mean i think i think being an event is like one of it is sometimes clearest at this level uh this is towards the end of it but he was saying you know defining event in terms of fidelity and conjoined with that wondering if there are two events if there is sort of the event and then the fidelity to the multiples connected to the event whether or not they're same but i mean they're in a certain rhythm or harmony um different repetition and you can see how you do have a critical moment that can spark an event and you see that it's not just localized to its space right that that subjects faithful to that event in in varying intensities and ranges and uh and what the truth of that event may be and and composing all the different multiples that that consist of that that set and uh it's transfinitude, right? That they, in being faithful to the event, they participate, and we all participate in our own ways, even and especially when, you know, uh, there is uh, the reverse sort of fidelity or a sort of inverted fidelity. That's all still part of the event to sort of either deny the event or to sort of downplay it or, or whatever. That's part of the, uh, of the, of the co belongs to, to the event and its faithfulness. So, you know, this. And it's, and it's always a question for to do with the ethics of the event of whether of, of for whom the event is and and you, you it's it's only it's it's especially when you say that no the event for example it's sort of the event of freedom or capitalistic like appropriation etc now that's circumscribed to like this one group um that's when you start to have these fascistic tendencies to, to sort of carve out these groups for whom the events uh, was meant, and, and I think that that's why he turns to Saint Paul and, and Christ, even as an atheist, you know, ironically, but perhaps for the irony's sake, that he finds you know, in Christ's death, not the death itself, but like the faithfulness that that Paul shows it, this working out of this axiom, this truth of, you know, if all men don't rise from the dead, then Christ doesn't rise from the dead, right? It's this, it's this proof of the event, the truth of the event through the for all, the once and for all of the of the resurrection. And Larlow will come in here with his sort of mystic shit and be like, it's never a once for all, it's always a one time each time. So the future Christ is like generic man, man in person, this imminent um, sort of non-material, non not an extension. Um, it's idempotent or idempotent, as I say, this superposition of all these uh, waves of of men and person, and it's that one time each time. But Christ, that the future Christ is always sort of 
potentially allowing. So this question of whether humanity should be saved as a whole um, is rephrased and sort of like quantified. I just feel like I need to read Badu. Does the refrain, is it merely, like is it merely providing structure and delimiting space and time, et cetera, or does it have, so is it like a repressive thing or does is there potentialities, is there lines of flight to draw from it? Like how does it work in that sense? The refrain, whether it be auditory, verbal, behavioral, et cetera, is, is contributing to a, a terror, it's a territorial as I, territorializing process or like delimiting space right and etc but is that is that all that it has to offer am i misunderstanding that are there is there some potential outside of that in terms of the refrain yeah i mean it, it's it's that it has that transversal vector right that transversal edge that that cuts across and is able to you know establish not just like communication between milieus, but you know, it has it has these these abilities to resonate throughout the different dimensions of the assemblage. Um, so in that sense, it, it it has like a very special role. Um, and it's this question of expressiveness, right? I think that's important. This question of style, as they bring up, that is like the the capstone, the very culmination point of of what refrains sort of can take on. And, you know, that's, that's, um, that comes back to like, uh, Deleuze's Fidelity of Spinoza and his working out of this philosophy of expressionism, um, this philosophy of expression. And so refrains insofar as they, you know, insofar as we understand matters of expression as having these different dynamic dimensional aptitudes of resonance and amplification then uh, and I think that's where, you know, that's that's why the, the bird is provides such this beautiful example for Guadri, why he seizes upon, you know, Ives felt this ethologist to to be able to not necessarily take an example, but, but like to like show show it's it's how it works out in in the biological domain. Some things coming to mind are are these refrains or is this too is this too on the nose as far as you know things like ACAB, fuck twelve, etc. Like that sort of or like even the chance of the of the demonstrators or what have you, like Yeah, I mean those are definitely Is that being too literal in I mean, terms of are, a refrain? Those are definitely refrains because I mean sometimes I you know, they'll believe they don't use it often, but if I if I can remember correctly, I mean they do talk about micro refrains. And I think like the capitalist jingle would be would 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 be an example so you know uh yeah i mean the the chanting is definitely one of the oldest sort of human um ritualistic you know like dimensions of the refrain i think that's the thing right that the birds it's not just the biological dimension and how that's but it's also how that's already an interaction with the trans individual right the collective and so the refrain that shows this this gamut of values and differentiations between the individual collective that also you know it taps into the it's it's first of all a phys, you know physical phenomenon the, the acoustic and then it's it has biological um, amplitudes and waves and then it it even 
already has this psychic dimension that that Quattri tries to bring up when he talks about everything starts thinking on the same at the same time, you know, but on you know on different registers. It's almost almost he starts to flirt with pantheism or sorry, uh, pantheism, panpsychism. Mm. Um, it makes me think of art again. The question of what a refrain is or what function does it serve? I wrote in the margins of a thousand plateaus, the eleventh plateau. Let's see, they no longer. This is from the plateau. They no longer constitute placards that mark territory, but motifs and counterpoints that mm-hmm. express the relation of the territory to interior impulses or exterior circumstances. No longer signatures, but a style. And then I wrote. What starts off as a corporeal or material territory demarcation transi- transitions to free-floating, a-signifying reference points to that's express good. or inhibit animal behavior. Oh, that's, so, that's good. like art, what what was once? Uh, oh, here, here's what else I wrote too. When the refrains come to refer to themselves, like when when art comes to cybernetically reference itself instead of being localized in animal group behavior. So that's when I think that has to do with the chant. Um, I don't know, I guess the refrain opens things up uh, rather than just being stuck in these like cycles of like animal behavior, eth- ethological stuff. It uh, opens up new lines of flight, new stuff happens. Um, so that's what we would hope would come from a refrain, which is a little little nugget of re-territorialization that would hopefully open up something new. Like, uh, ACAB hopefully would be a, <laughs> something that gets us to think about authority structures. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you, yeah, it's, it, yeah, the refrain is like a little, it's like a little, um, it's not just a little nugget of space time, but it's a nugget of consistency. Mm-hmm. And I think that since it's a question of consistency, this is why he, Watari comes back after talking about birds, before going back to talking about birds, it's like, here's the political question, you know, and it's about, can we have these, can we entertain these consistencies that as existential as they may be, don't merely like privilege the molar in this like, or or at least privilege the molar in in the dimensions in which it's already sort of like concretized and probabilized. And, you know, it's, it's, can, can we, can we like, allow the molecular more intensity, more force of negotiation that doesn't merely submit them to the mole beforehand, right? It's like, where, where do these degrees of freedom come from, if not from these quanta of possibilization that mm-hmm. always seem to already like diffuse themselves in the ways in which we come to, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to be as simple as something like they live where you put on the glasses and you see the you see ideology, you're staring at it, right? But it's because it's, it's obviously more subtle than that. It's obviously more sort of, um, there are all these different outlets and it's precisely when we lack these different outlets for um, discharging, right? That we, we start to entertain new refrains, that there's a violent shift of the molecular that, that still has to play itself out and, and can lead to uh, transformations, be they better or worse, right? There's always this, you know, there's always this risk in deterritorializing, but that doesn't mean that we should privilege it alone because it, 
it's the question of like, what are the residual reterritorializations with which we will better ground ourselves upon a, you know, it could be towards a more perfect union in that most abstract sense, but also in the, the most individual sense about making our lives better and making our lives count. It's this question of who counts that Badoo goes into very well too about the the events, which multiples are counted. And it's precisely for him, like it's, those, it's that ghost status where we're represented in the state, but not counted, where it's sort of this, this odd multiple that's left out and doesn't have a place in the system, you know, so it's, but that's the minoritarian, right? That's, that's becoming for Deleuze and Guattari that takes on, that's where lines of flight become avenues for change. And they can, we have to be very careful about the sort of the resonance of my, of these microfascist black holes. We have to, that we have to be very vigilant. Plus we take that hard right turn, you know, that may make it even more difficult to that, that degree of freedom, that optional choice that could in the end, like destroy degrees of freedom, right? Just as the constitution can amend itself to no longer be amendable or, you know, which is that paradox just as much as the more righteous thing is that at a certain point, governments are overthrown, right? They're revolted against and they don't always win as we know. And, but those revolutions sometimes concretize into even more misery. And I, that's, that's why I probably missed earlier. I couldn't help but you know, think of, think of that type of desperation, you know, of what leads Jean Valjean to steal a loaf of bread and go on this weird line of flight that entertains uh, his own salvation towards the end, but stole a loaf of bread to feed his, feed his nephew. One last passage I'll read from the text and get, get both of your thoughts on, and I think it tracks very well, and then we can wrap things up. Does that, does that sound good? It sounds good. Freedom is not created with subjectivity. True machinic freedom only starts the moment when annoying or uninteresting things can be made like themselves and when, without fail falling into a generalized and blind automatism, we become able to focus our capacities for life and expression into what moves, what creates, what changes the world and humanity. In other words, into individual or collective choices of desire. The opposition between a pure, signifying, individuated, and culpable subjectivity and a collective biologico-economic destiny over which consciousness, including social and machinic consciousness, would have to take control is not tenable. The same can be said of the dilemma between freedom and the innate. Well, that was a little bit of spice for your for your Hegel for your Hegel dialogue stuff. Some of that is some of that is talking to Hegelians, but it's not the it's it's really not the Hegelians themselves, but the but I mean here are the ethologists that have assumed some of the you know, the sort of classical philosophical the standard philosophical moves of this this type of dialectic by way of um alpha bung you could say you know in their own way without even having to reference hegel so and it's not even like a good hegel right it's the bad hegel of of just of just of just thesis thesis antithesis synthesis that mm. triadic hegel that's not as dynamic as uh, the movement of spirit and all that stuff, but you know, I think for Guattari, it's yeah, this the stuff about you know, stuff about machinic freedom, the stuff about yeah, it's the degrees of freedom. This question of dealing with, I mean, it, it, 
Sonoma or Deleuze would say it's this question of dealing with problems of being able who gets to make the problems it's the master right as he says in logic of sense right it's it's the teacher that makes problems so part of freedom part of education part of apprenticeship part of learning is this moment where we're able to make problems for ourselves what is problematic the power to to effectuate a new problemization it may not be through political means, through standard macro political means, right? Through standard, through voting. So there's a rejection of sort of the type of representative government that, that, that voting won't necessarily change anything. So that's, that already is a, is a problem or a crisis in the sense of collective political representation and organization. Already in the macro, it's, it's sort of, it's, it doesn't even come close to translating the the day-to-day -day problems micropolitically that yeah. individuals feel collectively in their own communities, which radiates out and, and is in connection with other communities because we live in this global digital world. Yeah. That's why I was stressing earlier the idea of uh, self-organization, which is really micropolitical. Um, you know, Guattari earlier has the chapter about exiting language which I think is an overlooked theme with him. And it kind of mirrors the somewhat libertarian adage, exit, all exit, no voice, where you should have the freedom to choose to how to organize as, as opposed to the freedom to be represented by someone else's organization. And I think that's an interesting tension that uh, is really hard to think about, especially in today's very state-oriented ways of thinking. And any final thoughts outside of that for for either of you before we wrap up for the day? Yeah, just give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> I just think uh, I don't know. I just like Guattari is an interesting way of writing and interesting way of combining different fields of research. An interesting way of stressing contingency and force and dynamics and all those kinds of things which i think give good epistemological models of thinking and they're good conversation starters i just batari's big thing was don't think too much stay say stupid shit and see what happens <laughs> <laughs> so that could be the the tagline for my twitter account right <laughs> yeah, it was the tagline on my blog for a bit, but I, oh, really? I took it off because I didn't want to be too much of a Guattari stan. <laughs> Anything wrong with that? True. <laughs> I guess I just want to say, uh, you know, it's we still have a long way to go, guys. So uh, <laughs> anything we didn't cover today from this chapter, we can always try to circle back to. The next chapter is by itself pretty 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 good so we'll have to set a date you know for another saturday coming up next month to uh to do chapter six right the reference points mm -hmm. and i would i wouldn't know off the top of my head what a good plateau would be to read in conjunction with it so we could we could skip it or maybe we'll figure it out um it's long enough to be, be done by itself yeah that sounds good well, DC, uh, do do your plugs before we before we let you go. Oh, okay, sounds good. Yeah, if you people should check out my blog, which is supposed to be pseudo analysis because I'm a sued, 
but I think <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm developing late onset dyslexia and I typed it pseudo analysis and <laughs> I didn't notice it till like a year later because that's how I am. <laughs> so I blog a lot about uh, all kinds of stuff there. Um, and you can check out my Patreon because I've got some eBooks coming up and you can follow me on Twitter, which is just the mouthpiece for my blog for the most part. And just come talk to me. I like talking to people. I would also definitely recommend uh, taking a look at the, the PDF that you have available on your Patreon about uh, kind of looking at Nickeland and accelerationism. I think mm -hmm. not only overall is, is really good, I think the, the bit here that like your, your diagram about the sort of deterritorialization, reterritorialization process, and then kind of the image of like how the, the guitar strum, like that's a, that's a, really fantastic metaphor thank you yeah but i really really enjoyed reading that so glad you did yeah it's a free document on patreon and then my other ebooks are just like one or two and three dollars or something i'm not trying to make people break the bank and they're not anything crazy but i do want to make hopefully some money off of it but uh yeah if people want to read that i think it's a cool text i made there thanks again dc we'll, we'll throw it to taylor and then i'll wrap us up yeah you guys can always Follow me at tadkins613 on Twitter. You can talk to me. I like talking to people too. I, DC, I totally agree. That's uh, it's always fun. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, just you know, check out check out Theory Talk, and we also have a Patreon page that you guys can check out. We got some some stuff that goes into deep dives of some of these books that we've talked about, and you know, uh, look out. I guess in July, July fourteenth for the. The two volumes of Simon Doan you know, that are coming out. Uh, if you guys are interested in that stuff, and you know, give it a give it a look. I think it's funny that both of you said you like to have discussions, and I don't. Is it? A, I don't know if it's an accurate meme or not. But have you seen the meme? It's like Deleuze where he it says, "I don't like to have discussions or or, or conversations with people." Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think especially when Deleuze is talking about roundtables that that can end up into, that, yeah. are, that are meant to, I mean, I think that for the Liz, if you got the right people together, if you got like Watari. Like us three. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, could, I could see him doing that. And you, and you see him doing that with the Abbasadair and his dialogues with Claire Par Parme. So that's, yeah. I think that to him is, is on a different level. He um, means, he, he hates yeah. the creation of false consensus. Because yes. he's a Nietzschean and he believes that conflict is what creates good thought and feeling, which I totally 100% agree with him. I'm not so, one for small talk. Yeah. Either was, we're going to connect or I'm just not right. going to talk with you. No, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm the same way. You know what's funny is that's, that's really Hegelian also. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, his, it, I think Nietzsche's, and I'm not sure if Nietzsche is the first one to say this, but he, you know, he, he describes that Socrates is having his interlocutors are ones that he chooses. And they also, we see people walking away from him. So they <laughs> choose whether or not to, to continue that dialogue. And yeah, you're right, DC. It's this question of Deleuze is against discussion in that sense and that false sense and, um, and debate, which mm -hmm. also seems to always produce, you know, it's always about arguing the strongest side. I mean, Socrates points this out too. You know, just bring it up. This, this, who, this. What is the right and good way to argue, and how to make the strong 
stronger than or how to make the weak stronger than the weak argument this is why he argues against sophism that that's what it at base does and it doesn't take any stand on the truth yeah. it just tries to win an argument and um that rhetoric yeah well that's why rhetoric is is the stupider banished. argument always wins he says <laughs> <laughs> that's right. yeah. Oh, good you're one. absolutely right taylor yeah well uh once again thanks thanks to both of you uh this will be this week's episode of uh super guatario brothers um but before i do sign off officially just want to mention you can follow me on twitter at unconscious hh on instagram at unconscious hh and then again if you're enjoying the content i'm putting out i do have a patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H, but this will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Super Cherry, signing off. Including the ultimate form of security, which is This is the typical violence of Violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.